we're continuing forward today um, with Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we're journeying through Matthew chapters 5 through 7. This is our fifth week in the series, and we've said several different times about what's happening in the sermon, and it bears saying again, what Jesus is doing in these two chapters, maybe the most popular, well-known section of the teachings of Jesus in the Bible, what he's doing is he's explaining what does life under his rule Life under his reign, what does it look like? What is happening with life in the kingdom of God? And throughout the history of the church, these two chapters that contain this sermon of Jesus have been understood and seen as the groundwork for discipleship. This is boots on the ground following Jesus. If you have questions, what does following Jesus look like in real time outside of a conceptual, ethereal, sort of theological belief system Sermon on the Mount gets you there. This is boots on the ground discipleship. And today, um, as was read just a moment ago, um, we're going to be addressing the issues of sexual lust and divorce. Sexual lust and divorce. So typically, here's how our sermon moments go. I love to begin our sermons with an illustration or a story that sort of draws out relevance to the topics we're going to be talking about. Um, but you don't need that with these two topics, right? <laughs> like, I can just sort of, you know, it's like, it's like a second grade classroom, uh, or, or not a second grade classroom, that would be wrong. It would like a, like a middle school classroom. Yeah, that's not, that's too young, that's not right. Um, a middle school classroom, if the teacher is losing attention in the room, they just say the word sex, and everyone's like, ah, they're tuned in, you know? Like, that's like this moment. Like, I can just say, we're talking about sexual lust and divorce today, and like, I already have your attention. Um, so preparing for today's sermon has all week long sort of felt like to me um, setting out on a cross-country family vacation only to find out that your car is broken down. And then you're like, okay, we're going to rent a car. So you go to the rental station, you know, the rental, the rental uh, car place, and they're like, yeah, we don't have any cars to give you. I'm like, okay. And then they say, but you know what? Our city has these brand new Lime scooters. They have some extra large ones occasionally. You can track them down. They're the really big one. You can just load your family up on a Lime scooter. That's not going to help me, right? That's not going to help me. It's like showing up to Red Prime and expecting this amazing steak dinner, and then they tell you all we have on the menu tonight is meatball subs, right? It's like, oh, that's, that's super weird. That's not going to work for what, I'm, what I have in mind, you know? And here's what I mean. What we're going to talk about today around these two topics is super weird. Like, I just want to throw that out there, serve it to you raw from the beginning. Like, this is super weird. Like, no one else in our culture is going to talk about this like Jesus is going to talk about this. And here's what I mean. On the first level, it's weird because many of us understand the goodness of Jesus. Like, many of us have a concept of the goodness and the, um, the acceptance of Jesus, the love of Jesus, but we don't understand the authority of Jesus. So like Jesus is loving, he's accepting, he's inclusive, but we don't know what to do with his authority when he confronts us. And then there's others of us in the room where we understand the authority of Jesus. Maybe you come from a fundamentalist background, you come from a really strict background, uh, a really rule-driven religious system, and you understand the authority of Jesus, but understanding the goodness of Jesus is difficult for you. So that's the first reason why what we're going to talk about is super weird, is because we're going to hear Jesus from one of those two places, but actually he's coming to us from both of those places. Yes, he's authoritative, and that doesn't diminish his goodness, and yes, he's super good, and that doesn't diminish his authority. He's holding both of those equally, right? And the other reason why this is weird is that we live in a cultural moment where the sexual liberation mantra of our day has failed to keep its promises. And all of us know that. All of us know that, right? The, the idea that your own conquest, your own curiosity, your own, you know, define your own journey, sexuality is supposed to give you fulfillment and joy, despite the fact that we're not fulfilled and we're busted up with regret, with shame, with confusion, with insecurities, with nightmares, with traumas. So the liberation movement has actually lied to us 
and none of us are liberated. And so what we're talking about today is super weird. Like it's going to go upstream for every one of us. And I know just merely mentioning lust and divorce draws out so many thoughts in the room. It draws out so many fears, anxieties, traumas are present. And even for me this week, I just want to be honest, like I've felt a tremendous weight all week long because this is not just the next passage in the line of where we're supposed to go in the Sermon on the Mount. This has everything to do with my personal story. Like th This is deeply, like I'm not here sort of abstracted from the passage telling you all about it. Like this is in my business. I'm sexually broken. I come from a home of multiple divorces and remarriages. My mom and I have been walked out on three times. Like, I don't say that to get sympathy. I say that to say, when Jesus speaks into this, he's speaking into my story. And yours too on a variety of levels, right? And not just us. There were all kinds of people in the crowd. He delivered this sermon on this day. And this was their stories, right? And he also still began the sermon, blessed are you, right? So he's not talking differently when he gets to this level. So here's what I want to say as we jump in, a couple of introductory remarks. As a church, in case you're just new and jumping in today, I'm, I'm so glad that you're here. And what I want you to know about Frontline as we approach this passage is um, we love Jesus. We love him. We're crazy about him. And we believe him. Like, we actually run against the grain in our church. We aim to in our culture who wants to believe Jesus where it's easy and then kind of chunk him to the side where it's not. We actually set out to really believe everything he says. We believe him, right? And here's what it means to believe Jesus. It means that when things get personal to us, we don't hide from him. When things get personal to us, we lay them down at his feet for him to heal us, for him to reframe the way we understand ourselves and our situations, and then for him to form us afresh. That's what it means to believe Jesus. So I don't come to this sermon and go, you know what, where I'm hurt, I'm going to capitulate to myself in order just to comfort things. No, where I'm hurt, I lay those things at the feet of Jesus and I go, hey, will you, will you help me understand that the right way, right? That that's for all of us in the room. And so here's what I want. So just so you kind of know, as I set out on this journey today, as we set out on this journey, here's four things that I want to accomplish. When Jesus is speaking these words, you got to know this. You got to know this. When Jesus is speaking these words, he's not doing so in a way to blacklist or sandwich board anybody. He's not doing it. In the crowd, when he delivered these words, there were all kinds of people who were lust-filled and divorcees. He's establishing his kingdom with those kinds of people. He's not blacklisting lust-filled divorcees or sandwich-boarding them. He's actually saying, I want to build my kingdom with you. That's crazy, right? And so don't forget, the sermon begins with the words, blessed. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If Jesus were trying to disqualify people from his kingdom, the people he was talking to on the day he delivered this sermon would have already been disqualified. <laughs> He's not doing that. He's not doing that. The second thing, stay with me to the end of this sermon. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna beg you, right? Not because I got things to say, but because I'm gonna try to unpack what Jesus says. And there's a tendency around these topics to just assume that you know where I'm going. And I'm going to ask that you would, I'm going to go on borrowed trust, right? Like, we just, like, stay with me to the end before you jump to conclusions, right? I, I, I would dare say that I'm probably going to land in a spot that you wouldn't assume I would land. So just stay with me is fun adventure, right? <laughs> the third thing, um, I can't, I can't. I can't cover every possible thing um, in this one sermon. I've got 35 minutes on a typical Sunday. I'm going to borrow 40 minutes of your time today. I can't cover everything today. 
Like, there's just so much happening in your story, so many unique circumstances and scenarios. I can't possibly cover all of it. But here's what I can tell you. Our elders have been praying for this sermon for a while in preparation for it, and we would love to talk with you. The, like we, we want to walk with you through what you're walking through, right? And here's the last thing, the fourth thing today. In, a Jesus, in, in addition to just unpacking what Jesus says, my aim and the aim of, and I want to just, I'm just joining the aim of Jesus here, and this is not unique to me, but I'm aiming today at honoring and upholding simultaneously a high view of God's design for marriage and removing the stigma that oftentimes those in the church experience if they've been divorced. I want to remove stigma, an unnecessary, undue experience of stigma, and at the same time hold up God's high view of marriage. Those two things are actually not opposed, and they beautifully hold hands. They they beautifully hold hands. So as we jump into the passage, I want to remind you of kind of how this sermon is being shaped and where we land in this moment. So as we talked a moment ago, what Jesus is doing is that he's exposing man-made religion in his day. Like, that's what's happening in this portion of the sermon. He's exposing man-made religion, and he's challenging the assumptions of what God is expecting in them. He's trying to work out for them what true righteousness in his kingdom looks like in all sorts of areas that we interact with day to day. Last week, we began this portion of the sermon, and what he's doing is he's got six statements of, you've heard it said, the the word on the street, the pop-level teaching of religion in your day is this, you've heard it said, and then Jesus is going to name that and then say, but now I say to you. He's exposing man-made religion, and then he's saying, here's the true righteousness of God's kingdom, right? And so last week we dealt with the first of those statements regarding murder and anger and reconciliation. Today, these are the second and third of those six statements on lust and divorce. So let's jump in, Matthew 25 or Matthew 5, 27 through 30, this is his teaching on lust. He says this, You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. So Jesus is speaking into a cultural moment. He's speaking this sermon that despite all of the religiosity in in Second Temple Judaism in the first century, despite all the religiosity present, there was a growing, increasing sexual progressive thought and intent. The Jewish culture was trying to find itself. It was trying to figure out who it was and order its convictions in the midst of a sexually progressive Roman culture. And so one of the threads that weaves its way through both of these teachings is the burden of Jesus to honor the dignity of women. He's stepping into Second Temple Judaism, into a very misogynistic, patriarchal culture, and he's giving this teaching, weaving through both of these, I want to raise the dignity of women, right? Beyond sexual objects, beyond being seen as property, he's showing women to be co-heirs with those who bear the image of God and the dignity of God and humanity along with all mankind. Jesus is speaking passionately here to humanize us, both male and female. So their culture, although it's abstracted from us by 2,000 years, it's not too different than ours. The Roman culture was sexualizing everybody. At the core of who you are is your sexuality. And Jesus is coming along to actually humanize all of us. You are more than your sexuality. You are more than that. And so the religious people of Jesus' day were asking the same question we're asking today, how far is too far? They're asking the exact same question, how far is too far? Translation, how much can I get away with and still be in God's good graces? Right? 
How much can I get away with? How far can the envelope be pushed and I'm still good with God? Like how, how much can I please myself, be driven along by my own passions and desires, and yet still have God's approval? And Jesus is trying to expose the false devotion to God that they had where they assumed the letter of the law. So they thought, you're going to be approved of by God on the sexual level if you don't commit adultery. They're like, okay, so just baseline, don't sleep around. You're good. They assumed the letter of the law without conformity to the heart of the law. True devotion to God doesn't merely show up at the external level. Congratulations, you haven't had an affair. True devotion to God shows up beyond the external level, and it shows up at the level of the heart when our thoughts, our confessions, and our desires all agree. Like That's true devotion to God. So Jesus is going to say this. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, right, God-honoring sexuality isn't so much whether or not you cheat on your spouse. Instead, God-honoring sexuality is about the secret thoughts of your heart and the fantasies that you travel with in your mind and are drawn out to consider of an alternate life with another spouse or an alternate life where you explore your own sexual desires abstracted from marriage. At this point, Jesus knows that when he says the thing about lust, and if you've already lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery, everyone in the crowd was tased. Everyone was tased. What do you mean? How can this be? Remember Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. This is the beginning of the sermon. Blessed, flourishing are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the crowd goes, this is impossible. Who among us hasn't done this? This is impossible. Clearly, if this is the kingdom of God, then I'm out. And all of us are out. And no one says amen to that. <laughs> Jesus' words here, but you got to hear this. Jesus' words here, they're not actually meant to cripple you. He's not delivering here. This is not a statement of judgment. But what he is doing is he's trying to cripple you from the standpoint of assuming that you can just live life on your own terms and please God with your own efforts. He's not crippling you with judgment. He's crippling the way you understand life with God. That's what he's crippling. And so no matter how you might be tempted to argue with Jesus about how unreasonable this is, no matter how much you might be tempted to argue with Jesus here, no matter how much you might want to oppose him, all of us know that he's right. All of us know he's right. This is why you bear shame. You might argue why you feel shame, but you feel shame, which bears witness to your conscience. Jesus is right. People are not objects to be consumed by our passions. People are not eye candy. People are not trophies of conquest. People are not the sum total of their sexual availability and attractiveness. It's not what we are. It's not what you are. Our bodies are not instruments of pleasure. And so for all the rage right now in our cultural moment about social justice, and it's all beautiful, right? Above all, the church ought to be the kinds of people that are most concerned with bringing justice to our cultures and caring for the distressed among us. But listen, I don't have to tell you, pornography is killing us. This is not a non-Christian addiction. This is very much a Christian addiction. Porn 
is shredding us. Shredding us. And so for all the talk about social justice, which is great, activism is awesome, but don't rush right on past the way you yourself are directly connected to the sex trade. I hate sex trafficking, yet I have my favorite websites. That's how it keeps going. That's how it keeps going. So listen, when I say all of this, right, Jesus is not anti-desire. Jesus is not anti-sex. He created it. Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. He didn't take that back when he's like, hey, what are you guys doing down there? He created it. Right? He's not anti-sex. He's not anti-pleasure. The scriptures, he's the God of all pleasure. He's not anti-desire. He's not anti-sex. He's not anti-pleasure. Here's what Jesus is anti. Abuse. Jesus is anti-abuse. He stands directly against the abuse that we inflict on other people through our hidden addictions. And he stands directly against the abuse that we inflict on ourselves when our own consciences participate with our broken desires. We inflict abuse on ourselves and other people through all kinds of hidden fantasies and addictions. So what are we supposed to do about this? Look at verses 29 and 30. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Did he say hell? And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Okay. <laughs> I laugh to keep from crying, right? The way we typically read this is one of two directions. One reading of this is to go, oh, this is figurative. Jesus doesn't really mean that. He really means, and then we'll kind of come up with something else that he really means, and what ends up happening is we over-theorize this, and we over-conceptualize this in a way that makes it so figurative that we actually avoid accountability to it. Or on the other side, the other reading of this is to go straight literal. Gouge eyes, cut hands, let's maim, right? And as soon as someone says that out loud, you go, that's absurd. Jesus is not calling for Mamefest 2019. And so if you go literal, you automatically chunk it because it's absurd. If you go figurative, you over-theorize it to the level you don't have accountability. Both bypass accountability. Dietrich Bonhoeffer on this passage, he says this. The fact that we don't receive an answer to the question, is this figurative or literal, only makes this commandment more inescapable. <laughs> Jesus doesn't explain, so am I really supposed to gouge my eye out? Am I really supposed to cut my hand off? Deal with it. Deal with your heart. So um, last summer, last several summers, uh, I, I got to travel and do some, some preaching at summer camps for high school students. And uh, I was in a summer camp in um, South Texas last summer. And uh, I preached a sermon one night on how the obedience that we show out to Jesus is actually the defining mark of our confession to Jesus. So the passage in 1 John 2 that says, if you claim to love him, you'll obey his commands. Anyone who claims to love him and does not obey him is a liar. That's actually what 1 John 2 says. I didn't talk about sexuality. I didn't talk about hell. I just talked about obedience to Jesus, right? Got, got back to my apartment house that they gave my family and I, and I'm hang, hanging out there, and I was playing Minion Rush on Apple TV with my wife because it's awesome. 
And, uh, <laughs> and about 30 minutes later, I had this knock at the door. It's like 1030 at night, knock at the door. And there was a high school student and his um, camp counselor or like a leader from his church. And I opened the door and said, hey, what's, what's going on? Never seen these people before. They're just there at the camp. And uh, the high school student says, I'm a bisexual. Are you saying I'm going to hell? And I said, hi, my name's Chad. Uh, I love, what's your name? You know? And there's a couple of rocking chairs outside of the apartment. He says, let's just sit down, man. Let's, let's sit down. I go, hey, what's going on? He goes, I'm a bisexual. He says it louder. Does that mean I'm going to hell? Are you telling me that I'm going to hell? I said, what made you suggest any of that? So well, the Bible just said, if I claim to love Jesus, and I do, and I don't keep his commandments, then I'm a liar. I said, okay, and thank you for asking this question. Like, I'd love, let's, let's talk about this. And, uh, and I said, do you, uh, do you believe Jesus? And he goes, yes, I love Jesus. I said, do you believe the Bible? He said, yes, I believe everything in the Bible. I said, um, do you believe Jesus was raised from the dead? And he goes, yes, I believe he was raised from the dead. And I said, well, do you believe that Jesus being raised from the dead means that he has all authority in heaven and on earth? And he goes, yes. I go, well, then do you believe that if Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth as the resurrected, crucified king, that he has the authority to speak into your sexuality? And he had tears streaming down his face. And he said, yes. And I said, listen, man. No one goes to hell because of their sexual impulses or desires. Any more than I go to hell from all my promiscuous crazy, sad, wayward fantasies that I myself have. Judgment is for those who would look at God in his face, smite him, turn their back, and do life on their own terms. His purposes are for flourishing. I said, this doesn't mean you won't have crazy desires, and Jesus isn't grossed out by you. He's not freaked out by you. He's not bothered by you. He's not inconvenienced by you. But he is trying to call you toward flourishing. And he is me too. And he walked away really sad that night. I had a conversation a few years ago with a college student in Austin, Texas. I lived in Austin, Texas. And I did college ministry in the University of Texas campus in Austin. And I know there's all kinds of judgment for that in the room already, but <laughs> I had a college student come to me and um, he confessed porn addiction. He says, man, I'm being ripped out by porn. And he told me he comes from a marriage or a home that's been wrecked with adultery, serial adultery, divorce. And he sees the, its own effects, things that he would refuse or hate to repeat happening to him. He said, I need help. I said, okay, man, I, won't, and I want to throw down with you. I said, hey, I'm familiar with your struggle. The most painful day of my life, one of the most painful days of my life was three years into my marriage when I had to confess to my new wife my own porn addiction. I get it. Let's follow Jesus. And he goes, yeah, let's do it. So we open up this passage, Matthew chapter 5, this teaching. I say, what Jesus is going to say is that we're going to have all kinds of raging impulses in our chest. But they don't own us. And they're not what's best for us. Are you willing to follow Jesus even to extreme measures to fight against these impulses? And he said, yes. So then we read, eye gouging, hand cutting. And I said, hey, Jesus isn't suggesting you maim yourself. But he is suggesting you take extreme examination of your heart and where it is that you're vulnerable to act out of these temptations. I says, where is your greatest place of vulnerability? And he looked at me as like, he didn't have to think about it, he just knows. My cell phone. 
my cell phone. It's with me all the time. I can stow away at any moment, and I can porn out for hours. I said, okay. Would you be willing, would you be willing to put down your smartphone and get a no internet access phone in order to follow Jesus as Lord? In order to be sobered, you've got to get the alcoholic away from the bottle. The issue here is not porn. The issue is a heart that won't resist its impulses. I need to get you away from that so you can be sobered. He looks back at me and he goes, what am I supposed to do about my email? Let that sit on you for a second. What am I supposed to do about my email? I said, brother, your family's been wrecked out. You're being wrecked out. Email is the least of your problems. But that's most of our reaction to Jesus. I can't do that because what about my email? This doesn't mean that we won't have wayward desires or impulses. I have them all the time. We have them all the time. The question is, what are you doing with them? What are you doing with them? You aren't just the sum total of your biochemical reactions and your base level appetites. That's not what you are. Don't let the shame that you carry or the temptation that you grapple with tell you that you are your appetites. That is to dehumanize yourself. The last thing that Jesus is trying to do is shame anyone or outstretch anyone. Here's what he's trying to do by saying this. He's trying to save us. He's trying to dignify us. He's trying to dignify our relationships. He's trying to dignify sexuality. This is not, this is not prude fest. This is not repression. This is not God trying to make you have a boring life. He's actually trying to make you flourish and look people in the eye. And so here's, here's the telling question, and we'll keep moving. When what you want and what Jesus is calling you to are in conflict, who wins? When what you want and what he's calling you to are in conflict, who wins? Because Jesus is going to say to any answer to that question, without discrimination in this room, come follow me. Bring your baggage and bring your addictions, and I'll change those over time. But let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. Okay, now, he moves forward to this teaching on divorce. Let's keep reading in 31. He says, It was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the reason we group these teachings together and the reason that Jesus laces this one back to back is because the common thread between them is the dignity of women in redeeming sexuality. It's the dignity of women redeeming sexuality in marriage. He's not just jumping topics. Now I'm gonna ask in this moment, I mean, I know I've taken you so far already, but I'm gonna ask in this moment, you just track with me the rest of the way, right? There's countless numbers of people who have come across these verses and have been hurt by the church because of sloppy teaching sloppy. Lots of people have been abused by religious institutions because of sloppy teaching of what's going on here. And there are countless numbers of other people who have stayed in abusive marriages out of fear of religious shame because of these verses. And if that's you on either account, man, I just want to say I'm, I'm sorry and I've been weeping in my prayers for you this week. It's not what's happening here. So please stay with me. 
because Jesus isn't doing either of those things. And some context around what's happening is really helpful. So in Jesus' day, the the dominant rabbinical teaching was that of what was known as any cause divorce. Any cause. Any cause divorce. And they got this conclusion from a loose interpretation, a misogynistic interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1. And here's on the screen. Deuteronomy 24.1, in their law, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if he then finds no favor, if she then finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, he then writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So the language of indecency is not talking about you just come up with any form and definition of indecency that you want. The language of indecency here is talking about sexual immorality. It's not a command or a concession to divorce under any cause. It's not even suggesting that at all, but it is allowing for it on the basis of sexual immorality, as Jesus says in Matthew 5. Hang with me. But over time, by the time Jesus showed up, the rabbis of his day had interpreted the language of find some indecency in her to mean you are free to divorce your wife over anything you don't like or come not to appreciate about her. She burnt the toast and he caused divorce. Like that was literally what was going on. You're walking down the road, you're married, you see someone that you think is more attractive and more desirable, you find out she's single, any cause divorce, I just don't think you're pretty anymore, indecency, marry a new one. This was the Jewish rabbinical teaching of his day. And in their hypocrisy, they were claiming themselves to be guiltless of adultery in their lust to find a new wife and to carry out their fantasy elsewhere. They were claiming themselves guiltless, letting themselves off the hook, saying, I haven't committed adultery. I at least had the decency of giving her a certificate. Thank you for your services. You're no longer needed. Divorce. I didn't commit adultery. I gave her a certificate. This was their day. It's a horrific, unjust, religious justification for their sin. They adhered to the letter of the law without the heart of the law, right? Okay, so the broader teaching of Jesus on this issue of divorce comes in Matthew 19, and we're going to run through it really fast. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't, no worries. It's all going to be on the screen. The broader teaching on divorce shows up in Matthew 19, and with that context, all these dots are going to get connected. 19.3. So the Pharisees came up to Jesus and they tested him, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? We've typically read that. Is there any reason for divorce? Assuming the answer is no. That's not what they were asking. Since when did the Pharisees ask Jesus a legitimate question? They were going, don't you agree with us that any cause divorce is right? Look at what Jesus answers. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, quoting Genesis 2, the first marriage, leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They shall no longer be two but one. And so whatever God joins together, let no man separate. Jesus responds to their question about what they can get away with in divorce by talking about the sanctity and the permanence of God's design for marriage. Wait, Jesus, you didn't answer the question. No, I did answer the question. Get rid of your any cause divorce language. God designed marriage to be permanent, to be dignified, to be until death do we part. So they say to him, verse 7, well then why then did Moses, referencing Deuteronomy 24.1, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They try to quote the Old Testament to Jesus like he doesn't know it. (laughs) They're trying to play a game of Bible trivia to Jesus. Bad move. Right? Look how Jesus responds in verse 8. Because they ask, well then why, 
is divorce even mentioned in the Old Testament? He says, it's because of your hardness of heart, you fools. Right? It's because of your hardness of heart that he allowed you to divorce your wives. From the beginning, it was not so. This isn't part of God's heart and design and intent. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for the case of sexual immorality, not just any indecency, but except in the case of where there is a severing of the covenant because of infidelity over and over again, only in that is there a concession, right? So Jesus corrects their understanding. Don't talk to me about divorce at your leisure while maintaining yourselves to be good with God. Then he limits the cause for divorce of sexual immorality. They are asking questions about what they can get away with but Jesus is responding with accountability and true righteousness and affirming the seriousness of marriage. Okay, so now that historical context is really helpful. It's really, really helpful. They had a view of marriage and divorce that was oppressive to women. What would end up happening in a culture that didn't give many rights to women is that if they were divorced and given the certificate, yeah, they're cut off from this marriage, but because they didn't have a place in the market or anywhere else to supply for themselves, they would have been left on the streets. Like, this was oppressive to women. And so Jesus comes along and says, don't talk to yourself about being right with God when you're throwing those made in his image on the streets as sexual property, right? This is very likely why the woman at the well who has had five marriages and was living with a co- a, another lover, the reason she had so many marriages was because she was just trying not to be homeless, Like, that's why he approaches her with such compassion. She had been abused by the religious system that claimed justification with God because of a certificate, right? And so this is the explanation of what's going on here. Jesus isn't judging divorced people, and he's not abusing divorced people. What he's doing is he's correcting a lazy view of marriage and a, low, a, a lazy view of divorce and a low view of marriage. They're wondering about how far their licentiousness can go, but Jesus is responding with the sanctity and accountability of marriage, which is why the next teaching in Sermon on the Mount is about keeping your oaths. Keep your vows. <laughs> that's why the next thing is about that's all one sermon. Quit calling yourself righteous for lack of adultery. You're an adulterer in your heart because of lust. You're not faithful to your spouse. Keep your vows. Somewhere on the mount. Okay, so what about us? Let's land this plane. Are there any reasons for divorce biblically defined? Because I know that that's like so many stories in here. Biblically defined reasons for divorce is laid out in this passage sexual immorality. The Greek word used here is porneia, it's where we get our word pornography, right? And it's not. It's not isolated just to adultery. It's including all sexual deviance, all kinds of sexual um, promiscuity outside of God's design. And here's what's crazy. There's a concession for divorce with sexual immorality, but not a command for it. And here's why I point that out. Because the book of Hosea is all about God pursuing his adulterous wife, which is us. How many times have you and I cheated on God? It's a concession, but God says, I will not break my covenant. God is not upset with anyone who would divorce under this circumstance, but it's also not a command, right? So one biblically divine reason for divorce would be sexual morality. The other two reasons for biblically Defined divorce would be abuse or abandonment. Abuse or abandonment. And this is because in those two situations, clearly the covenant and the integrity of marriage has been compromised. We, we need to get to safety. We need to get to provision. Notice, though, that biblically defined divorce is way more narrow than any of us realize. And this is not the reality for most marriages on the brink of divorce. This is the case for some, but not most. Reasons not to get divorced 
that are more common are, we just don't have anything in common anymore. Not a biblical concession for divorce, and it's sinful. We don't love each other anymore. We don't have a good sex life. We're incompatible. Of course you're incompatible. You're two sinners. I don't know two sinners who have ever been compatible. You want a kingdom, they want a kingdom, whose kingdom wins? Incompatibility, right? Well, he or she will just never change. They're never going to change, and so I'm out. These aren't reasons for divorce. These are reasons for counseling and community, but they're not reasons for divorce. All of us live in these very spaces from time to time in varying degrees, but that doesn't mean you bail. There might be wisdom under these circumstances to be separated for a season. There might be wisdom to be separated for a season, but only that can be discerned as a last chance scenario under lots of counseling and community around you, but not divorce. No one said marriage would be easy, and I, so I just want to point this out here, man. I'm not suggesting that your marriage is easy, difficult, or, 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 or really peaceful. It might be really difficult. But quite possibly, one of the greatest witnesses we will have in this world to Christ is faithfulness in our marriages. How freakish is that in this day and age? Right? The reason God cares about marriage is because it is the icon of the Christ church union. When marriages are fractured, there is a fracturing of the icon that is permanent and it breaks God's heart. There's so much more to say on that, but for time I want to move on. So what about remarriage? Like what about remarriage? This is a difficult question to answer because there's so many stories in the room. And this one needs careful reflection. All faithful Christians, I read probably 400 pages of stuff this week to come around this topic. All faithful Christians throughout history say the same thing. Remarriage may, might be permissible, but it ought to be done with the care of the church, bringing people in, carefully examined by the two individuals, not just flippantly running into a second, third, fourth, fifth marriage, and in serious submission to the heart of God. Serious submission to the heart of God. These are grounds for legitimate remarriage. And so biblically speaking, the witness of the scriptures is where there is legitimate divorce, there is legitimate remarriage. Right? Okay, last question. But what if I've been divorced? What if I've been remarried? Again, I can't walk through all the scenarios in the room, but here's what I want to say to you. If you've been divorced or you're currently remarried, right? This is not so much what have you done and what have you been through. It's not about that at all. Here's what this is about. What does God say? Here's what God says. He hates divorce Hang with me, not divorced people. God does not hate divorcees. He doesn't. The whole scriptures are about God reconciling with us. All of us have been unfaithful. All of us have broken covenant. All of us. God hates divorce, but not divorced people. The second thing it's about, what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done? He's made atonement for all sin. The atonement of Jesus doesn't legitimize your sin, but it does justify sinners. So what do we do? We mourn. God, help. We mourn. We repent. We receive a better word, and we walk forward with a new formation. That's what we do. And then lastly, how do you respond? I'm not concerned with whether you've been divorced. I'm not concerned with whether you've been remarried. What I am concerned with after those first two is what are you doing right now? Are you submitting to Jesus? Are you saying, yes, I want to follow you, whatever you say? That, that's what happens when you have God's heart 
the work of Christ, and the call of the Holy Spirit. So, in closing, if you are considering divorce, here's what I want to say. Please tap the brakes. Please. Invite in the church. Invite in your elders. We want to talk with you. We want to pray. We want to fight. We want to throw down for the sake of your flourishing. We want to. We want to get you help. We want to get you counseling. If you're the victim of abuse, if you're in here and you're in an abused relationship, whether dating or marriage, please get help. Talk with us. Please let us know. Call us, email us, reach out however you would want. We want to connect with you. We want to get you to some safe resources. We will stop at nothing to make sure you're safe. In our church, you have a voice. And you will be taken seriously. You've got to know that. Lastly, I'd love for all of us to stand to receive this. I want to read you a passage as we close. From 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Pretty clear on that one, right? But do not be deceived. The sexually immoral, neither them, idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. Everyone in the room was just listed in verses 9 and 10. We know that to be true. And Jesus is right. And such were some of you. But you were washed. Washed. No strings attached. You were sanctified, made holy in the sight of God. Nothing to cover over, nothing to ignore, nothing to pretend it didn't happen. It all happened, and you were eyes wide open sanctified. And you were justified, declared righteous by God because of the work of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. This is all of us. This is all of us. What I know about Jesus in this teaching is that you don't walk away from him with shame and you also don't walk away from him with swagger. You walk away from him washed, sanctified, and justified. Praising God.